Welcome to the Logically Faithful podcast. This podcast is created to point seekers towards the beautiful, the good and the true, and to act on what gives liberty, equality and justice for all. This podcast is created to give listeners a taste of the beautiful, cultivate an affection for the good and to provide rational path to the true, helping to bring justice, equality and liberty to our society. Your host is Khaldun Swice, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the City Colleges of Chicago and Tutor of Philosophy with Oxford University. Well, welcome back. This is Khaldun. I am continuing my interview with Ken Davis, the amazing communicator <laughs> and head of the SCORE conference, which I strongly recommend you look into. Uh, let's go ahead and get started, and I appreciate your feedback. And Ken, as a philosophy, former philosophy uh, major, you understand this well. Uh, having these ideas, and they become so esoteric for some people. Uh, they become so um, uh, cerebral that without having that, that emotional or a life connection, it's hard to, That's uh, right. the, to, to reach out and draw the line between life and theory. Uh, and that's one of the struggles I've had in teaching philosophy throughout all these years. Um, sometimes students would just roll their eyes talking about Aristotelian ethics, but until I apply it to everyday work, what's happening today in, in the terrorism worldwide, it becomes uh, difficult to, to, to make that real for people. Um, yes. so, so I appreciate that, and that engagement aspect is so important of it. So here's, let me move on to the qu third question here. What are some important questions we can ask ourselves as we prepare? for a major presentation before diverse groups of people? Well, based on the previous question, I would say one of the most important questions, and this is where the deepest thinking comes, mm. is what is my objective? What really is my objective? You and I both know, as you attended the conference, yes. we spent most of our time providing a template that helps people come up with that objective. Yeah, you guys hammered that, away at that objective. Thing. Yeah, oh my goodness. You, 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 you know, I, I make this statement. Aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Okay? okay? Aim at nothing and you will hit it every single time. But if you know where you're going, you can take anybody with you. And so you have a specific objective. Some people say, well, I have five. Then pick one. Pick one. Or what you might have is five big ideas that lead to a bigger objective. I don't know, but you, you, you if... There's another saying that uh, by a great general, and I wish I could remember who the general was, who said, divide and conquer. Do you remember who that was? I do not, but I'm sure Mr. Google will tell me. If yeah, yeah. <laughs> divide and conquer. And he was talking about military strategy. Right. If, if you divide your troops, if you divide the power that you have, if you divide up the time you have to communicate, mm. you dilute what you have. Like, can I give you an illustration that takes it to the heart? Please. I was in Alaska one time, and I was uh, actually in a hunting camp, and the electricity to this camp was completely supplied by a stream. Okay. The stream was quite narrow, and at one place, they had narrowed it even smaller and put a paddle wheel or some kind of turbine there that spun as a result of the power of that stream and created electricity to light the camp. It was power. It was focused. It was it was uh, focused power. Mm. A couple of years later, I went back, and 
the stream had flooded. Rather than it being directed in a narrow channel, it had gone everywhere and it destroyed the camp. Hmm. Do you see the illustration? When you take the time available, the material available, and focus it to a single objective, there's great power there. Hmm. When you ramble, when you just present a bunch of ideas, it, it, it's destructive. It's destructive to what you're trying to do, which is communicate, and it's destructive to the desire of the audience to get something of substance because it just goes it just goes everywhere. So that the important questions you ask are, what is my objective? Mm -hmm. Now this is going to be exactly like the question you asked before. Okay. What steps? What rationale? What uh, stories? What movements will I use to take my audience to that objective? And then finally, what stories can I gather? What um, uh, uh, resources can I put in this that will make people want to listen, that will make it engaging, that will make people want to hear it? What stories will clarify mm -hmm. the raw data that I'm trying to get across? This is interesting, a little bit of an off-tangent here. I remember when I give lectures on philosophy, I want to shove so much information in there. I, I think I don't want them to miss this, but by shoving so much, I have the fire hydrant effect, don't I? That's exactly I right. That's exactly right. from this uh, water fountain, and I'm over yep. here flushing them with a fire hydrant information, and I'm trying to be generous with my information, but I don't realize I'm losing everyone. That's, that's a, there's a real truth to that, my friend. Yeah. Uh, and, and the human mind is only capable of handling so much. Um, if, if you can be the kind of communicator who leaves people with one major um, change, one major uh, piece of information, uh, it's, it's more than that, one major action that they want to take or one major idea that they want to encompass and grasp, then you have succeeded more than the person who pours out everything and everybody leaves going, he was so much smarter than I am. <laughs> and then you ask him, what did he say? <laughs> that's right, what did he say? <laughs> Stuff that's smarter than I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> oh man, I've been there. Okay, let's go on here. Uh, what? Uh, what's? Why is the conventional wisdom about uh, public speaking just plain wrong? Full of yeah. myths and misconceptions. You know, the yeah. standard models that they give you in, in these uh, speech classes. Yes. No, let's I, talk I about those a little bit. Yeah, I think that the reason they're wrong is they leave out, uh, and again, you notice how we're circling back to this passion that I have for objective all right. the time. Mm -hmm. For instance, the conventional wisdom goes something like this. In preparing a talk, you do your research, you do your study, whatever it might be, then you kind of accumulate or write down all of the things you want to say. Mm -hmm. All of the things <laughs> you want to say. And then you list those things in some kind of an order that you're going to make your presentation, then you make your presentation. Right. And, and really all that is is a, is a regurgitation of thoughts or ideas that don't lead anywhere. It is like a fire hose. It's kind of like a shotgun. Hmm. And it, it accomplishes the same thing. It blows the audience apart. Now, here, here's, here's the antithesis of the conventional wisdom. The antithesis of the conventional wisdom is you do your research, so important. You do your study, whatever it is you're going to do. You, 
and then you gather together all the things you want to say. You list all the things you want to say. Sounds a little like the, the old conventional wisdom, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. But here's where it changes. You ask yourself a very important philosophical question that's all about deep thinking. Why? <laughs> Why do I want to say these things? Hmm. Then, as a good communicator, you eliminate all those things you listed that don't lead to that objective. The answer to the question why is the answer to the question how am I going to reach these people? What is the objective? What is the one main action I want them to take? Mm -hmm. What is the main one thing that I want them to leave here knowing how to do or whatever it might be? And then you eliminate anything that doesn't apply to that. Then you gather the most powerful rationale mm -hmm. that lead to that objective. You gather stories that will make it clear. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this is the this is the other part of this that I, uh, that is rarely listed anywhere. Mm -hmm. Then you let it ferment. You give life time to work on that. You know, if you've got that bare bones of a speech with the objective and some of the rationale put together and you let it set, guess what happens? You walk into a grocery store and you watch someone do something that isn't rational at all mm -hmm. and you've got your illustration. <laughs> but had you just prepared that speech the day you're going to give it and you don't give time an opportunity to work on it, mm -hmm. so many of life's illustrations are, are never given an opportunity to attach themselves to that structure. It's like the bumper sticker that says, see motorcycles. Uh, I, I buy a bike and now everyone has one. Well, because I'm now looking for it. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. That, that cognitive biases that comes out. Yeah. Uh, right. And, and if I'm able to put that in there as a template and then start thinking about it throughout the day, yep. throughout the weeks, it's yep. all preparation. And somebody told me this before and it really helped. The more you... Uh, sweat in practice the less you bleed in battle that's really true that's really true yeah and and, and I would say that the stage the podium is definitely a battleground mm. and so then we change it to the more you sweat in practice the less you perspire on stage <laughs> yeah <laughs> bingo bingo okay now let's move to the score method which I thought mm -hmm. was just brilliant uh, let's. Uh, how did you stumble upon it? Was it through your own mistakes, your own fault, or did somebody? Did you just kind of illumination come onto you, like like the Buddha? Like, oh no, oh, this is how to do it. <laughs> yeah, I had a dream. I had a dream. That's <laughs> no. Here's here. I didn't really. I, I guess I didn't really stumble upon it. There were two authors. Both of these people were preachers, by the way. Mm. And uh, you say, oh, that eliminates me. No, it doesn't. These are people that have to communicate every single week in front of a critical audience about an esoteric, very uh -huh. difficult subject with a lot of resistance. And uh, uh, one of them was, uh, boy, now i got to remember my sources, uh, Haddon Robinson, and another one was a professor at Trinity University. You remember his name? Lloyd Perry. Oh, okay. And they wrote books, and um, I was amazed at the emphasis in both of these books on speaking with an objective. Uh, you know, if, if for a preacher, it's easy for him to quote seven Bible verses and six or seven platitudes and pile them all together and then 
tell people to leave and and this this was really something different and it really emphasized the important that less uh, that le- the importance of the fact that less is better hmm. that uh, you know rather than getting through a whole passage of of scripture or in the case of philosophy rather than presenting the whole case maybe what you do is present part of the case and then provide opportunity for people and maybe your whole objective is to get people to read the rest <laughs> right. you know um, I had a professor that inspired me like that by here's how he did it he would lecture mm-hmm. guess what his objective was to leave us with the right questions Okay. when he would finish his class would be screaming for answers that had been unresolved in the class and when we raised our hands and and mm-hmm. flopping our hands in the air saying give us the answer to this mm-hmm. tell me what his response was I think you know look it up yourself look it up yourself come back, come back next week uh-huh. with the answer and that is your assignment <laughs> yes so he had succeeded as a communicator you say but he didn't convince people as a philosopher mm-hmm. he was thinking he was teaching us to think deeper to read with a critical eye and so we had to read people like Anselm and Kant and mm-hmm. all of these unbelievable people who, and, and this is what I loved about philosophy, and by the way, just so your listeners know, I didn't major in it because you have to have a brain to major in it. Uh, they only let me minor in it. <laughs> uh, but uh, what I loved, uh, uh, I was, I was, and this is part of my lack of brain. I forgot what I was going to say. What I loved about philosophy was that, um, well, I forgot what I loved about philosophy. We'll come back to it. It'll spring back. I'm sure it'll come back to you there. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm still learning the process oh, myself. I, I need to answer your question. Yes. So those were the guys that gave me the, the, the basic idea. And what we did was develop a template mm-hmm. that forces people. You, you were there. It's painful. Mm-hmm. It forces people with specific blanks and words to fill in those blanks and words to come up with an objective. Now, if they ever communicated that way, I'd hunt them down and take them out myself. But it does give them the template for it that they can add specific and encouraging and engaging language to that, um, that forces them to have that objective. And since they're in a small group, and they see how it works with other people. Mm-hmm. You watched people in our group, remember this, who started out and it was painful to watch them try to communicate mm-hmm. because they were never really sure of what they were doing. There was a lack of confidence. Once they gained this idea of having a specific objective, knowing how to put it together, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, when we did our first conference, we didn't know if it worked, mm-hmm. but we, we videotaped these speeches, people saw the progress, and I said, we're on to something here. Mm-hmm. And that was 30 years ago, and we're still going. And we can see why it's still going. I remember just the grueling part of trying to focus my mind and have my colleagues just critique me. That's what makes the score conference so fascinating, so interesting, and so unique, is that you're not just sitting there in an audience absorbing information uh, uh, innocuously you're actually engaging in the process you're up there on the stage you're the one being critiqued you're the one honing your skills um, and you're the one on the fire uh, and then the, hopefully the production will come out something uh, more that will produce more light than heat at the end. hey I remembered what I loved about philosophy yeah 
it's not a light subject. And in fact, there are people in philosophy who don't belong there. The early philosophers gave their lives for what they believed and changed the course of human history. It's an important it's an important study. It's, it's very important. And the people who belong in there are the people who realize it's important and who are willing to do the deep thinking, the hard work, to come up with what, what they're doing. It's fascinating that we have some philosophies now built on the most tenuous of foundations hmm. that, uh, you know, that reason doesn't really matter. It doesn't have to be reasonable to be true. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? If you examine that statement, it, it kills itself before it even is born. Go ahead and expand on that, since uh, this is something big with my audiences. So. Well, well this, is, this is the deal, you know. Um, it, uh, if, if part of your philosophy is, uh, for instance, one of the things that fascinated me were ideas like this. We know that in order for us to know the, 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 for me, the absolute essence of philosophy is how can I know? That you have to start there. How can I know? Mm-hmm. Is my thinking reasonable? How, how, how can we even function? Mm-hmm. And at the base of that, there are certain assumptions that have to be true. They have to be true. Of the law of identity, things are as they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, was it Socrates that dealt with it or Plato? Uh, the shadow in the cave guy. Who, yeah, that's Plato, right? Plato, Plato. Plato yeah. Daniel with Leibniz, but mm-hmm. yes, yes. Uh, the things are as they are. If things aren't as they are, mm-hmm. well, hello, that's the end of the discussion. There's, there's nothing that moves beyond that. If we can't know, then there is no discussion. Another one is the law of uniformity. Mm-hmm. That things are as they are wherever you find them. So if you pass oxygen and, or if you combine oxygen and um, uh, hydrogen together in the right formula and pass a spark through it, you get water. Mm-hmm. The next time you don't get vinegar. The the next time you don't get a good case of scotch. <laughs> you get water every single time. Mm-hmm. If that isn't true, our, the discussion is over. We need to have now, some kind of axioms, right? Yeah. So, there is an element of philosophy that says unless we can empirically prove, and, and uh, unless we can empirically prove something, it can't be true. I deal with this in the faith issues that I cover. Mm-hmm. You know, people deny them because they say they can't be proven. Right. And I and I believe that uh, I can't just go out there and say, well, I believe this is true just because it's a God thing, it's a faith thing. In, in my case, and, for, and again, I realize that you have people, um, some faith people, some people that aren't of faith, but here's what I, my belief is that I, the only things that I can believe that exist in supernature is I depend on what the scriptures say, okay? Mm-hmm. So, if somebody says, my watch is run by demons, I don't buy it, you know? Mm-hmm. But if somebody says Jesus was raised from the dead, I buy it. Mm-hmm. Now, there is an element of philosophy that says this. If it cannot be empirically, scientifically proven, then I can't accept it. Are you following me? I am, and it's a very popular philosophy. Okay, listen to me now. The law of identity cannot be proven. Mm -hmm. 
There is no way to empirically prove that A equals A. There is no way to prove that the law of uh, uniformity is true. Mm-hmm. Well, you say, well, I've done a thousand experiments. Mm-hmm. What about a thousand one? You can't do those experiments into infinity. Mm-hmm. There's Maybe it won't happen the next time. Well, the, So the truth of the matter is the very essence of our reason is not empirically provable. The essence of what, excuse me, of what allows us to reason is not proven. So I rest on the fact that, and and I've based my entire future off into eternity on this, Mm -hmm. that that, uh, there is a supernatural part of this that is often ignored by people. Um, I will I will stay up days at a time discussing with people elements of philosophy that are opposed to what I believe. Mm-hmm. But the moment they say you can't depend on reason or there's no such thing as absolutes, mm-hmm. I'm out of there because the discussion is over. There is no discussion after that. When a person says to me there's no such thing as absolutes, mm-hmm. they've just denied what they just stated. <laughs> Right, they're cut, philosophically cutting their own throat. If we That's put it exactly that way. right. Right, right. That's right. exactly yeah, right. They're pulling the foundations from under their own building. Um, yeah, it's it's a problem. It's a problem in philosophy. It's a problem in epistemology. And when you are communicating with people, if you don't have a basic foundation of agreement yes. with each other, how could you even move forward? Yeah. Uh, now let me it's, it's let me show you how this applies to what we're talking about. Please. I wrote a book years no, ago no, called How to Speak to Youth and Keep Them Awake at the Same Time. I was working with youth at the time, and of course, their their time, uh, what do you call that? Their time attention or time span of brain, what do you, what do you call that? Attention span. Attention span, thank you, my producer has a bigger brain than me. Their attention span is about a nanosecond. Hmm. So I wrote this book on how you can hold their attention, communicate with them uh, without making them fall asleep. And one of the elements I brought into there, because I had already discovered and began to practice the score process, was the importance of speaking with an objective. So I had a friend who, who wrote a national magazine, and he did a critique of the book, and he said the book was fabulous, except for this part where it said, you have to speak with an objective. He said, that's ridiculous in youth work, and it's ridiculous in anything. So I met with him, and I said, tell me what you, you were talking about that. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, well, uh, a lot of great speakers spoke without objective. Mm. And I said, name one. And he could not name one. He went all the way from Jesus to some of the great philosophers. Right. I, and he couldn't name one. Mm. They all spoke with specific objective, especially if they were, forgive me for going back to this, because I love it, deep thinkers right okay so uh, I he said I said well give me an example then of a talk that would not that would not have an objective mm-hmm. and this is a friendly conversation between two people thinking about this idea he said well sometimes you're just giving information now let's go back to the idea about painting yourself into a philosophical quarter mm-hmm. he said sometimes you're just giving information and I ask him a one-word question. Why? Mm-hmm. He can't answer me. If he gives me an answer, mm-hmm. he's giving me the objective for the giving the information. Exactly. Yes. 
And if he says there is no reason for giving the information, mm -hmm. then there's no reason for giving the talk. Amen to that. If I, if I may. <laughs> Does that mean we're done now when you uh, said amen? No, no, no. Oh, we got a little bit more. Just a little <laughs> bit more to go. <laughs> now, you've already answered a lot of these questions I have set up here. But let me let me jump to some of these uh, as we move on. Uh, roadblocks. Uh, let's see. We got that. Yeah. Roadblocks. Uh, ultimate questions of philosophy. We, we touched on some of those. Yeah. Some minor Kip topics like you know the nature of God, the meaning of existence, etc. Um, I would love to, but I would love to do this. I would love to talk about number 11. Okay, let's jump to it. Number 11, all right. How does one avoid using speaking methodologies as a tool to manipulate one's audiences? Matter of fact, I, was, uh, I do a class on logic, which talks about the manipulation that's being used in the media, religion, and uh, social enterprises. Uh, for example, the black vote, the white vote, the woman's vote. And people actually vote in chunks. They don't realize it, but they do go into a type of group think. Well, they just believe what people tell them, and the, the political enterprise uses that to their advantage. So Billy Graham, who I highly respect, has pre-planned people to walk down during his crusades when he gives the invitation. And I was shocked when I read this as a Christian. How could you manipulate people like that? But then I started to reflect on it. Wait a minute. It is a type of uh, a way to get people off their behinds. To, uh -huh. to engage, and then he's trying to get people to do that. Yeah. How does one avoid using these types of methods to manipulate people in your audience or in your group? So okay, first, yeah, I love this. I love this when you when you when you posted this question. I I love this question because I have my own philosophy on this, mm. and and here it is in a nutshell. All communication mm. is manipulation. Ouch. Okay, and Go it's on. either. It's either based on truth mm -hmm. or it's based on uh, selfish, you know, something to get something for yourself. Mm -hmm. But all communication is, is trying to get people to take some action. That is manipulation. But not manipulation in the worst sense of the word. Manipulation, in the worst sense of the word, is getting people to take an action that will not benefit them, but benefit you. That's the negative connotation, right? Yes, yes. Now, now let's go back to the Billy Graham thing. I actually spoke for him. Did you? On several occasions, yes. Okay. And my memory of that situation was he would announce from the stage that there were people moving with them. Hmm that would be there with them when they got to the front. So it wasn't a um, deceptive kind of thing in my re uh, uh, remembering this. Mm -hmm. He would say from, the, from that uh, platform he was on mm -hmm. that there were people that were moving with that they wouldn't be alone. There were people moving with them mm -hmm. that would join them at the front. And in fact, there were volunteers designed just to do that, to handle whatever whatever uh, those people were dealing with in their spiritual lives when they got to the front. Um, when, when I walk into a room uh, before I do a talk, I arrange the room so that people can uh, better be focused just on me. If there's distracting stuff behind me, I eliminate it. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when I, in some of my faith-based situations, I would have people stand if I wanted them to respond in some way, mm -hmm. simply so that they could move out easier and not have to stand up and walk past people who were sitting down, okay. 
all of those are forms of positive manipulation, you might say. It's a way of, to make it easier for people to respond to whatever the objective is. Can we call it motivation rather than manipulation? Maybe the word I think twice. motivation, yeah. M manipulation. Yeah. For, yeah. Some of my talks, for example, Ken, I would, um, I would ask some of my students, sometimes they would come along with me, and I'll have them stand up in the Q&A time when I realize the Q&A question was just going all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Ask a question based on some kind of Aristotelian or Kantian philosophy. Um, or uh, a question that would probe to the heart of the, the, the objection I was talking about. And I would plant that person in the audience to do that in advance. Um, so that after he'd asked the question, and then the doors open for others to jump in. I thought, in, in some sense, I was feeling guilty about that manipulation part of it. But at the same time, I wanted to motivate them. So that there's yeah. a balancing act. You're, you're helping them move forward. I, I used to have a horse that wouldn't go anywhere. And then you just put a big old stick out and a carrot on the stick in front of him, and he would walk along, and I could have my ride. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that actually works. Yeah. Oh, it did. Yeah. I'm I'm not kidding you. Yeah, Kate. Kate was the name of the horse. Is yep. that right? Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's amazing. And then later she'd gallop full speed, and then come to a dead stop, and I'd end up on the road in front of her. Ouch! I'm just thinking yeah. of the, the Christopher Reeve example there. Okay. Uh, all right. If we started today to take seriously some of the things you're telling us, how would our presentations be different in 30, 90 or days or a year if we started to start honing them and focusing on this thing that you call the objective, which so many of us, especially in the academia, seem to uh, skip or have too many of? We'd find our audience more interested. Our presentations would be shorter and more to the point. There would be more time for questions. We would be more confident in our presentation because we would know exactly what we're trying to accomplish and how we're going to get there. Um, and we would see people taking action, buying product, accepting philosophies, uh, or at least being willing to think deeper uh, into uh, what those philosophies might be. Um, all of those things would be true. I think what we have learned to lean on is the comment of a student or uh, in the case of a preacher, a congregation member, in the case of a, a speaker, uh, someone in the audience on the way out going, hey, that was a great speech. That means nothing. Often that means, excuse me, <laughs> i got to get to my car. Hmm. Often it means I like you or there was something you said that's important. What? This goes back to the very first question you asked me. Why do you continue to do what you're doing? Because of the letters I get from the book I wrote, Fully Alive, from people who had decided to end their own lives, and then found hope. Hmm. That's how it's different. People begin to respond. People's lives are changed. There's nothing that a professor wants more, or at least doesn't realize they want until they're ending the end of their career and some student comes in and says in this moment in this class i got it and it changed my life it makes all that doesn't it yeah yeah it's life-changing that's what happens that's the biggest difference and i found that in my experience too when i get these letters it just profoundly affects me to continue to moving forward especially when, right. I, when i'm feeling i'm not affecting anybody i'm not touching anybody then i get this letter that just revolutionizes how i how i think and I know God uses that in profound ways. Uh, Ken, this is not part of the questions here, but it just came to me as I was thinking about this. I know a lot of people who want to go into education 
or go into apologetics or go into fields of uh, engaging in the academia. How would they know after a certain while that, look, I just don't have what it takes or um, I'm trying to have what it takes, but there are certain skills, uh, certain clues that are telling me maybe there's a different career for me. Um, obvious clues are, you know, stumbling, not able to finish your sentence. Other than the obvious, are there other things that you found in your experience with the score conference and others that would help us to say, maybe I should consider a different path or I need to change something dramatic to shift back? The two major things that come to my mind are these. First of all, that your students your audience, whoever it might be, stop placing value on what you're doing. Okay. If they don't value it, in the case of an entrepreneur, that means they're not willing to pay for it. If I put something on the internet, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a course, we have score on the internet, and nobody responds to that, that says something to me. They don't value it. Mm. If, if the only way they'll take it is if it's free, Uh, I have a substantial fee that I charge for my speaking. Mm -hmm. I I still know that I have to do this even as I move toward quote unquote retreadment because I don't believe in retirement. I believe in retreading. Yeah, but um, even as I move toward that, I know that I have to keep doing what I'm doing because people are still valuing that enough to pay that fee. And in my case, that's that's what determines that value. In the case of an educator, it's they know when the student is placing value on it. But there's another one. The the speaker, the the educator, the entrepreneur, the uh, whatever it might be, in his own heart, in her own heart, will know. You, you will know. There's either a great satisfaction and fulfillment that comes out of what you're doing, even though you may not be doing it exactly as good as someone else or perfectly, and there is a great discomfort that comes when you know you're... I think that this is a a, a natural thing. I actually think it's a God thing. A great discomfort that comes when you're in a position where you are not... um, impacting people the way you want to impact people. And that's true of someone, whether they're a faith-based person or not. Right, right. Okay, so that inner mold, that inner drive, that inner motivation. And if you do have it, it's still there, continue to hone it and improve it. That's right. And, and if you do have it and it's still there, and um, then you continue to hone it so that it becomes more valuable to your students, to your audience, to your listeners. Well, Ken, this is okay. This has been an amazing time. Uh, a lot of fascinating information, uh, subliminal information we have to tap into and really think deeply about. Uh, I appreciate your time. Any uh, final words or final comments before we wrap up uh, in the land this plane? Well, I would love to um, to uh, have your listeners, and I don't know if this is inappropriate or not, but to come to our website, mm-hmm. uh, uh, kendavis.com and see if there's some things there that might be of interest to them. Our book, Fully Alive, is probably the most impactful thing. We made a motion picture out of it. That's now on DVD. It went rather quickly to DVD. Uh, they were selling it right in the theater. Okay. But um, that, was a, that was a joke. So, yeah. <laughs> They're supposed to, I'm supposed to hear laughter on me. <laughs> I didn't catch it. I thought you were serious. <laughs> 
<laughs> but anyway, uh, our materials and what we do are there, and if it hits a chord in people's lives, that's great. They can access that stuff there, and also if they ever want me to come and speak, that's available there. Okay. And uh, the SCORE conference, Yes. I would love, do you do show notes and stuff like that? I would love to put, uh, have you get the information from our people here and... And, uh, boy, it would be fun to have some of your listeners come to our SCORE conference. We will put all that information on our show notes and make sure everyone has access to it. And this is such a privilege being with you. I, I, uh, I love these kinds of discussions. And I, and I hope that it made sense. As a philosopher, as, as you as a philosopher, uh, me being on your podcast is a little intimidating. I, I hope it made sense, and I hope I offered some uh, some. Uh, Good content for your listeners. Absolutely, Ken. Absolutely. And we do appreciate your time. And uh, uh, I know you are a busy man with all the work that you're doing. So thank you again. Thank you. All right.